0: To the silver screen.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to the fourth installment in our Jason Bourne movie review series. Today, we are reviewing *The Bourne Legacy*. This is your co-host Corbin, and I'm Alan. So, technically, we weren't originally supposed to be reviewing *The Bourne Legacy* right now. We were supposed to be reviewing *Tenant* and wrapping up our Christopher Nolan movie review series. No surprise, that film has been patched back, I think, at least two or three times now.
0: So it was supposed to come out, like, what, mid-July, and then it got pushed back to end of July, and then it got pushed back again to mid-August, and then now, um, well, they've completely pulled it from any kind of release and yeah. don't have a release date for it yet. So we'll see when we actually get to review that. But yeah, when right now we're back with board.
1: Yeah, in the description below of all the podcast episodes, I always have the upcoming schedule of release. So now I have officially put on a couple of the upcoming movies, Tentative, and due to COVID-19, the release date is subject to change. We were going to be reviewing Halloween Kills later this year. That's that has right. been pushed back a full year. Candyman has now been pushed back again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm trying to think what else. Ghostbusters, who
0: knows when that
1: movie is ever going to come out.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So, back to finish up the Bourne review series. Today, as I said, we're going to be reviewing Legacy. And the next week, we are going to be reviewing Jason Bourne. As of the time of this recording, I am about a third or maybe almost halfway through the TV show Treadstone. I've been um, uh, picked up the DVD set, been watching through that. So I will have a review of the TV show as well. Um, And don't worry, listeners, I am still watching Terminator. The Sarah Connor Chronicles. It is taking me forever. We'll talk about why that is once I do review it. But the review of the TV show is still coming. I'm not watching that for nothing there i do have quite a bit to say about that show so i'm eager to get that review out as well but nevertheless audiences had to wait a really long time to get the fourth born film
0: and i mean to be fair as well i mean they didn't really think that there was going to be another film cuz it, it was just originally that originally just that trilogy
1: right exactly robert ludlum wrote the original three books he passed away, he got a new guy to take over the book series. This right. is based off of the title of the book, The Book and movie Share No Similarities. I do go much more into depth in your guide to the Born Legacy about the making of this movie, their production, and its overall impact today and at the time of its release. So if you want to know more about that year in cinema back in 2012, go ahead and listen to that. It's funny because we just did finish um, The Dark Knight Rises, which also came out in 2012. And these right. two uh, went up against each other at the box office. They did, yeah. I thought that was funny. But nevertheless, just a reminder, Born Ultimatum came out August 3rd, 2007. This came out August Friday, August 10th, 2012. Mm-hmm. Now, Greengrass and Matt Damon are not back. I'm going to dash your dreams right there. Matt Damon is not in this film which was something that took me by surprise when I first saw this movie in theaters, because I kept expecting him to cameo at the end. And I guess it had already been reported. I didn't pay that close attention back then. It had been reported he wasn't going to be here.
0: Right. And I think that was kind of uh, uh, a bit of controversy in general, that it's a Bourne movie without Jason, without the actual man, Jason Bourne himself in it. Um, I remember that being one of the main points of contention when it first came out. I didn't see this in the theater. I watched it. Let me think, when it, when did I first watch this? Well, it would have been around Christmas time at my aunt's house, I believe. All of his cousins were just hanging out and decided to watch Born Legacy or whatever. I think that was how I watched it. So, yeah. that I remember that being a main point of contention, that Jason Bourne is not in a, a Bourne movie with his name in it.
1: it. It was very controversial, and I think that had something to do with probably it's overall reception, but definitely it's box office numbers, which we'll talk about here in a minute, but nevertheless. So clearly the trailers in 2012 did not get you in to the theaters. You and I would have been like halfway through high school at this point. Uh, we would have been sophomores, I believe. Yes. Yeah, I right. So would the trailers didn't get you in then would they get you in now? If this movie mm-hmm. was coming out today?
0: Not really. um, Coming in with the foreknowledge of the first three movies. uh, I would not be very excited to see this because I would be more on the side of why are they making this? Um, Especially when Jason Bourne, uh, Matt Damon, is not the main character. That would be my main question um, and probably would push me away from it um, seeing a new guy at the helm. So no, I wouldn't be very excited to see it. Also, the second trailer just kind of gives everything away Um, To one of those trailers. The first one is pretty obtuse, but the second one likes to give a lot of the plot details away. So no wouldn't be too excited to going seeing this trailer uh, wouldn't be too excited to see it in the theater.
1: I'm in the same boat as you, especially five years waiting five years can be very detrimental to a franchise. You really got to turn around on those and capitalize off the success, especially because Ultimatum was the most well-received film in the franchise. It did crazy numbers at the box office. You can't wait five years. You'll lose momentum. So nevertheless, I was in theaters, as I just said. I was pretty excited to see this movie because I was a huge fan of the trilogy. So I did go see it then. Um, My thoughts coming out of the theater from what I remember was I was just very confused by this movie. And in some ways, I was kind of let down by the end, thinking, where are they going to go from here? What kind of was the point of this whole movie? But nevertheless, I was still excited for the sequels to The Bourne Legacy. But watching the trailer today... Um, If you want to just watch the whole movie in a condensed two and a half minutes, yeah, you've got the trailer here. And of course, just like with Ultimatum, the trailer, I think, is pretty deceptively edited. It's a very born centric trailer, especially that first one. Um, So, yeah, this trailer would not get me into theaters today, which is funny because it got me into theaters back in 2012. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) I did watch this movie a number of times over the years. Um, I guarantee you and me probably watched it at like one of my birthday parties that in maybe yeah. X-Men origins Wolverine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I do know. I've seen this at least twice. Um, I watched it once, of course, at my aunt's house. And then I think I watched it one other time because my uncle had it on at one point. So I know I've at least seen it two times and may have been one time at your house as well. For all we know,
1: I think I've seen this movie probably four or five times. I watch oh, really? it like once every three years for some reason, and and yet I never remember the plot of this movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So thanks to the magic of Letterboxd, the last time I watched this movie was August 16th, 2016, almost four years ago. Oh, wow. And my score back then, we can now gauge to see if my score has changed by the end of this review. Uh, I gave it a 7 out of 10 back in 2016. Oh, Wow. So keep that in mind, listeners, to see if my score has gone up or down.
0: I just checked. Um, my initial score on IMDb is a 6. Ah. Um, I'm not sure when I last rated that. I, I think it may have been a 7 at some point, but that is currently my score on, on IMDb. So we'll, I'm curious to see what my score is when we finish uh, this review.
1: Well, that six isn't too far off from Metascore. The Metascore is a 61, which is still can technically considered mm-hmm. generally positive reviews. I think it's like right on the cusp, though. But just a quick uh, overview here of the scores and the box office numbers um, before we get into the plot of the movie. So this movie has a 6.7 on IMDb, a major drop from the straight eight from the last time.
0: Yeah, major drop.
1: It has a 2.8 on Letterboxd, making this the lowest rated Letterboxed film. Ooh! And Rotten Tomatoes, just keep in mind, the trilogy was certified fresh. This movie got a 56% critics approval rating and a 58% from audiences. Pretty uh, sharp decline coming off that
0: 92%. Yeah, that is a sharp decline uh, coming off of those movies. That's interesting. I mean, I guess not super interesting, given that it's a Bourne movie without Jason Bourne in it. Um, I know that, as we've been talking about, that's a pretty big point of controversy. So,
1: And CinemaScore audiences right out of the theater gave it a B, a series low.
0: Yeah, it is pretty low. I mean, especially for CinemaScore.
1: Now, the budget is actually the highest budget of the entire franchise, with $125 million. It was... Number one opening weekend, but it has the week of extremely weak opening weekend with only 38 million dollars. Mm. It's not good. So the movies that it uh, went up against that weekend were The Campaign and Hope Springs. Guess what? Nobody remembers those movies. Huh. Um, So the top five that weekend was The Bourne Legacy, The Campaign, The Dark Knight Rises, which had been out for a month already. because was a number three. Okay. Hope right, Springs right. and Alan and I saw this fifth film in the drive-in together, Total Recall.
0: That's right. We did. <laughs> we did. We watched it was at the drive-in that time when we were there. It was Total Recall and Dark Knight Rises. Those oh. are the two of the three movies that we were watching. I forget what that third movie was, but it's at least those two.
1: That's right. We, we talked about that in our Dark Knight Rises review. I forgot about we, that.
0: Yeah, we did. Yeah. Well, nobody remembers Total Recall. No.
1: So. No. So, how did it do overall at the box office? Well, it has a domestic gross of 113 million. Ooh. The lowest domestic gross of the entire franchise.
0: Yeah, because that doesn't even make the budget back, right? Nope. It's close, but not completely. No,
1: it did fall short of the budget by about uh, 12 million. Foreign's a little better at 162.9 million. For a worldwide total of two hundred seventy-six million dollars.
0: Okay, so it's that's pretty close to double. Um, I it wouldn't. I don't think it'd be considered a hit, but it wouldn't. it's not horrible numbers. Um, that's pretty close to double the budget, but uh, that's not necessarily much more than that.
1: Yeah. So it did double the budget but when you're factoring marketing costs it really didn't make much of a profit and especially yeah. um domestically it did very poorly yeah it did so listeners if you haven't seen the born legacy and you don't want the film spoiled for you go ahead and click pause right now come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it running concurrent with the events of the born ultimatum cia director ezra kramer reprised by scott glenn Contacts Admiral Mark Turso, played by Stacey Keach. Oh, just a heads up, there's about 27,000 characters in this movie, so yep. keep that in mind. <laughs> so he contacts Admiral Mark Turso in order to minimize the damage Bourne may cause. Terso contacts Colonel Eric Beyer, played by Edward Norton, who heads INRAG, the National Research Assay Group based in Washington, D.C. What do they really do? We don't know. <laughs> Byer and his team have knowledge of all the beta programs, including Treadstone and Black Briar, but they primarily head a program called Outcome. Instead of violent espionage, which was what Jason Borden did in Treadstone, these operatives work in plain sight and are physically and mentally enhanced through chemicals created by Stasarin Morlanta. Bayer is worried if Bourne and Pamela Landy, reprised by Joan Allen, blow the lid on Black Briar, then those associated with Outcome will go down with them. Ultimately, their hand is forced to completely scrap Outcome when they receive word from Noah Vosens, reprised by David Strathairns, second in command, Ray Wills, reprised by Corey Johnson, that Bourne is right on the CIA's doorstep in New York. Meanwhile, in Alaska, operative Aaron Cross, whose real name is Kenneth J. Kitsum, played by Jeremy Renner, is running for his life from wolves and eventually the government. He meets agent number three, played by Oscar Isaac, who is quickly just blown up by a drone. Shocked to see Oscar Isaac in this movie. Yep. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Realizing he has been betrayed by the government, Cross is able to outsmart and destroy the drone, but not before tricking Byer's crew that he perished. Cross makes his way back to the mainland U.S. where he is searching for Dr. Marta Shearing, played by Rachel Wise. She works for Starin Morlanta, researching how their drugs affect the agents. The bad news is Cross has run out of pills, which he needs, lest he utterly degrade. Therefore, he's seeking out Shearing to hook him up. Shockingly, Shearing has just undergone a traumatic experience where her work colleague went postal taking out everyone in the lab except her. Later, a group of doctors visits Shearing at her home, pretending to counsel her, but in actuality, they are there to terminate her since anyone associated with the outcome agents must perish. Shearing is saved by Cross, and the two travel to the Manila Philippines, where the live virus resides. If Shearing can viral out Cross, then he will no longer need the pills. Meanwhile, Byers' group is constantly playing catch-up. Once they do figure out the duo are at the Manila facility, they activate a Lark's agent. Another program described as Treadstone without the inconsistency, Outcome without the emotional noise. Aaron is injected with the live virus, but it makes him very ill until his body can assimilate it fully into his system. In a daring motorcycle chase, both Cross and Shearing together defeat the Lark's agent. But Aaron is finally down for the count after being undefeatable this whole time. Meanwhile, back in New York, Dr. Albert Hirsch, reprised by Albert Finney, has been murdered by Byer's team, but it was made to look like an accident. That's a deleted scene.
0: Ah, okay. Uh, we'll no, that I'll makes talk sense. about that here in a minute.
1: <laughs> so he, he was actually murdered by Byer's team, to make, but it was made to look like an accident. Hirsch was medically spearheading Treadstone, and Dr. Hillcott, played by Neil Brooks Cunningham, did the same for Outcome. There is leaked footage on the internet of those two together, so Byer's team fears if they don't take out Hirsch, then he'll roll over on Hillcott and expose them. You got that? Makes sense. All right. Also, Also, Vosin seems to be in the clear by labeling Landy a traitor. Despite outing the Black operations, her plan appears to have backfired on her, which was the whole events at the end of Ultimatum. Back off the coast of the Philippines, Shearing and Cross have now fallen in love and hope to have a peaceful life away from prying government eyes as credits roll. Good job, (laughs) (laughs) Corbin. Thanks. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah, as I said, a lot of characters, it doesn't help that this is all happening at the same time as Ultimatum. Yeah. So that's my first question, Alan. How did you feel about that? when you realized these stories are running parallel to each other?
0: So I remember when I had first watched it, I was very confused um, as to why they were saying, Jason Bourne's in New York, but not showing Mm -hmm. Jason Bourne when I first watched it because I didn't pick up on the fact that these movies are happening concurrently. Um, Knowing that now, um, it makes things feel a little bit more like they make sense um, now seeing it again, however, it, it does feel like, uh, there are good chunks of this movie where we're kind of playing, uh, the background characters, uh, cause we're not in the main action with Jason Bourne in New York city going after Noah Volson and stuff like that. Or what we're, what's happening is we're, we're watching the, I guess the outcome of all of that we're watching the behind the scenes parts of it in a, in a lot of these scenes, so, seeing that now, it does raise the question, why isn't Jason Bourne in this movie? Um, might be a question we we'll want to discuss a little later, but that is the question that I kept coming to, especially when they kept referring back to the Bourne Ultimatum.
1: It is weird to show actual footage from the Bourne Ultimatum mm-hmm. and have a lot of the characters from there and, and moments from that movie. And just not put Jason Bourne in this. Right. I understand they want to focus on Alex Cross, or excuse me, Aaron Cross. I keep calling him Alex Cross. That was a different movie, Tyler Perry movie. Different movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is weird that they do keep Bourne in the shadows. I'm guessing it's because they kind of want us to just really focus on these new characters. But nevertheless, keep in mind that Ultimatum and legacy are happening at the exact same time. Right,
0: right, and I mean it. Kind of, it kind of makes a little bit of sense because uh, most of this movie is about the background operations. How there's more than just Treadstone and Blackbriar. There are a bunch of other operations. So we, this movie is more or less taking, getting us to the backstage of a lot of these things we've seen in the the previous trilogy. That's, and I guess that kind of makes a bit more sense as to why Jason Bourne isn't the main character. It's Jimmy Renner's character. That I mean, I'm just kind of trying to justify why this movie is the way that it is. We are playing a more backstage role than before where we were front stage with Jason Bourne.
1: And I'm trying to think, could they have just made this a sequel? I think they could have figured out a way because all of the Gilroy brothers are here Uh, John Gilroy edits and Dan and Tony wrote the screenplay together. And I understand they wanted to show the pressure was on within the government agencies that, of course, there wasn't just one Black Ops uh, team called Black Briar or Treadstone. And I'm kind of glad we've shifted away from that instead of kind of rehashing that because I think that was kind of getting tired over the trilogy. Yeah. So now we realize there is also larks and outcome and supposedly they all stem in a dropped line you hear they all stem from emerald blake which we have no idea what that is maybe in jason Bourne we'll learn what that is Mm -hmm. but i do like the fact that there is a bigger world and that was the whole point is to show the broader context of the situation so within just this slice of ultimatum there's more going on as well and i think if you're going to set up any kind of big world or crossover, this is probably a smart way to do it. So I'm, I'm fine with all of that.
0: Right. And I guess in my opinion, uh, I liked the fact that with the Jason Bourne trilogy, it was very character centric. We were mostly following Jason Bourne, either defending himself or reacting to something that the CIA was doing. Right. That was essentially the... A broad over scope of the original trilogy, so we got to follow Jason Bourne um, and see more of a more the more personal side of his character. This time around, we kind of get that with Jeremy Renner's character, but at the same time, the focus is more on the fact that there is more going on behind the scenes than what we were originally told. Right? We find out, like we were just talking about here a second ago. There's more than just Blackbriar Treadstone. There's also Outcome. There's Larks. There's even a couple more that they that you briefly get to see um, on a text file. Um, so there's more than just those two programs. There's a few more uh, that the CIA is also operating on or have operated on in the past. So I guess partially, I'm engaged in this movie, being able to see, like you were just saying, the bigger world that they have established here. I'm I'm willing to see where they're willing to go because at the same time, this is also a more, uh, it's a more original property for the Gilroy brothers while still being in the same universe as the Jason Bourne series. Because before we kind of noted in Ultimatum, Tony Gilroy kind of got the short shraft in that film when it came to writing it. So this one, I can kind of see where he's going off on his own, still connected to the universe, but kind of going off on his own to make his own story, but still relating it to what we've seen before with Bourne.
1: And if I haven't mentioned already, I was very excited to come into this movie, actually, for the sole fact that I watched Gilroy's film, Michael Clayton, which got him two Oscar nominations. The film won an Oscar and in total received seven. I talk about more about that in your guide to this film. So I was very excited to see that. I think Michael Clayton is a fantastic film. So I had some pretty high expectations for how Gilroy would handle this movie because He brought on his brother to edit the film, his other brother to write the film. He brought James Newton Howard from Michael Clayton. Howard got the Oscar nomination for Michael Clayton. He brought him on to score this movie. So I was very excited about this and uh, go back and listen to our thoughts on the way Paul Greengrass and his DP handled that film. I wasn't very much a fan of it. But all of that being said, I think the Gilroy brothers do a nice job crafting a broader world but nevertheless this does feel very much like this is going to be the first installment in a new trilogy we've got new bad guys new heroes um all all new backstory we get glimpses of Aaron cross and some third world country with uh buyer and he's also bold and he's getting inducted into the program there's still a lot about this character in world we don't know yet
0: yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's called The Born Legacy, and you do get to see how what's already been set up in the previous movies is kind of coming back to this whole, this new character. But he's like a Jason right. Bourne, but better in a lot of ways, because he's more, he's on medication that makes him mentally and physically stronger um, than what normal training would ever do to a person. So in some ways we do get to see a new, a new Jason Bourne character here. He's Jason Bourne, but better in some ways, right? So yeah, you're right. It feels like they're setting up to make a new trilogy um, that's connected to the same universe, but now through a different lens. Now we're seeing it through the lens of somebody who is more connected to the inside of all these operations. Um, that partially being a Norton's character and partially being Jimmy Renner's character. So you do get to see some parallels from this and, um, born identity and other movies as well of the born series. But at the same time, like I just mentioned, this does feel more like it's also its original story, um, connected to the same universe, but at the same time, still serving as not necessarily leading so much on that universe that it won't survive without it. Now, I, I do think that you probably should see at least Ultimatum before seeing this movie to kind of get an idea as to when this movie's taking place because they do flashback to parts of Ultimatum. But for the most part, uh, this does serve somewhat as being its own standalone piece. Not completely, but for the most part.
1: Now, Jeremy Renner is an interesting choice to fill the role of this of our new hero. Right. Because he had come off of the Hurt Locker, which won the Best Picture that year. So he was on everybody's uh, screen wondering what he would do next. And he was in Thor briefly as Hawkeye. And then the same year as Born Legacy, he was Hawkeye in the Avengers movie. The year before that, he was a big part of Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. He was a big role of great performance in The Town, right. uh, the Ben Affleck film. So he, he was a big get, especially around this time.
0: Right, yeah. His his career was definitely starting to exponentially on the, be on the rise at this point.
1: Exactly. So, and I think one of the th- really positive things that Renner does with this performance is he has more attitude and emotion than Bourne did. And they really wanted to set him apart as this guy knows the system that he's a part of, but he's not necessarily always okay with it and just going to fall into lockstep with it. And the other thing is he has a very strong human connection. He is able to just take on a role and blend into a situation and talk his way through it uh, with ease. Whereas Jason would always just revert to violence and he could just fight his way out of it like a terminator right this guy uh there is a great deleted scene you should watch where he is pulled over by a state trooper and he has such deep intricacy of this backstory he just fabricated that he's able to get his way out of a ticket from this state trooper right so we see that later on when he's in the factory in manila and he's pretending to be a doctor so i do like how At times he can be, and I think the action, he does a great job with the action, but he also does a great job with kind of taking on more personable personas. Yeah,
0: I I do agree. That is one of my positives as well, is seeing how the main character in a Bourne movie is a bit more relatable this time around. Jason Bourne, they do give him a lot of human qualities, like he's like a robot or anything, but at the same time... um, I do feel like Jimmy Renner does a better job at humanizing and grounding this character, while still feeling like they're an agent that was trained to be a killer, right? So, yeah, you're you're correct. They, I think that they do a better job here at humanizing the main character, whereas before it still was kind of that way, but not like completely. Like there were there were times, a lot of times during those movies, it felt like Jason Bourne was more a robot, and they they did that to make him feel more awesome um, than they did to make him feel more humanistic. There are still those humanistic elements to it, um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I think that this one does a better job at grounding these char- this character especially than in the previous movies. At least making him a bit more realistic as like a normal human being rather than a, a cold-blooded killer.
1: Now, I'm going to say something that might be controversial, but I think that human connection between Aaron and Shearing works better than that we saw between Jason and Marie. And the reason I say that is because, especially once um, shearing is given Jason the, or not Jason, given Aaron the live virus, and he's like really sick and sweating. I think she does; those two do a great job. She realizes the toll that her work has done. She is always trying to explain away because these two had a connection in the past. She realizes that it's not just all labs and numbers and formulas. Mm. These are real human beings, and she does feel that moral responsibility to stick with him and take care of him, which makes so much more sense than Marie's motivation, which was never quite clear, except she was just kind of this thrill-seeking adventurer, and the and these two were kind of star-crossed lovers in a way. I would say these two relationship it comes about in a much more realistic way, and their whole reason for staying together and their bonding moments, I would say feel more grounded in reality than anything Jason and Marie had.
0: I'll say this. um, I guess I don't completely... uh, I'm not... I guess my opinion on it is a bit different than yours because I feel that Marie as a character felt more like uh, an original character than that of... What's her name? Dr. Shearing. Shearing, Dr. Shearing here in this movie. I feel like Dr. Shearing as a character kind of feels... Pretty flat in one note. There are moments where I feel she goes deeper, but she also feels more like, especially in the last thirty minutes, like a damsel in distress. Um, so while the human, while the connection between the two of them um, does feel realistic, I, I feel that Marie's and uh, Jason's car- Jason's relationship in the first movie and the Born Identity has more of a grounding, re- grounding reality to it. Because of Marie's character and how uh ground and how realistic and how uh what's the word I'm thinking of? More organic than it that is it is here. And here, because I think it's because of the way that they that they've written uh Dr. Shearing, um, she doesn't feel like anything original. She doesn't she feels like uh like a, like I said, a, like a damsel in distress. Whereas Marie feels more like a, a character of her own. That's that's the way I've seen it.
1: I will say, I don't think Rachel Wise gives a very good performance here. Mm-hmm. I think her, especially her American accent, you could tell she's kind of straining in some situations. Maybe that's just me, but I, I really wasn't as pulled into her performance. I do think um, the lady that prayed, played Marie did a very good job. Yeah. And she was a fun character. I, you're right. I would say... Um, Shearing is more of a rote character. She's just kind of more by the books in certain ways. But nevertheless, I do like that they had this past. There's a doctor that runs these tests, and then the patient, and then they kind of end up going on the run together. And I will say, I don't think um, Shearing is as much of a damsel in distress as Nikki was in The Born Ultimatum. Well, okay.
0: Yes. <laughs> I'll be <hear laughs> with you on that part. <laughs>
1: Because if it wasn't for shearing, then the Lark's agent would probably have destroyed them because she's the one that um, like uses her helmet or kicks his motorcycle into the thing. So I appreciate that a woman in this movie can actually do something aside from one away and get shot. And she actually has some kind of smarts about her and she's just not always at the subjugation of the man i do like that moment where the man is vulnerable and is in the hands of the woman and hopefully she'll help him as well so i would say so far as like the sex roles and character dynamics i think there are a little bit more fleshed out and better in this movie at least i feel like gilroy is trying a little bit more than in some of the last films where they do feel like true just stereotypical archetypes in some ways, but. I, I will agree with you in this, Alan. It's she's not great in this movie, and the way her character is written, some of her lines and delivery is not great at all.
0: Right, and I think that that especially because I heard the movie is towards the end, um, where I feel like she needs to be playing a bigger part because the last thirty minutes and it's a long chase scene. Um, it's it's too long. Oh yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second but the last 30 minutes I feel really show how much her character hasn't been developed because when it she has a role, she's kind of, as you were just saying, like the grounding force for Jeremy Renner. Although Jeremy Renner, Jeremy Renner's character is the one who finds her and seeks her out and essentially says, I need you to come with me and find and get me demetted off of this. Um, because of that, it feels like she's going along not completely by her own choice. Whereas in Born Identity, she had a choice and Jason gave her more than one chance to leave and she never did. Um, so I'm not, I guess I don't really want to relate this too much to Born Identity because it is its own movie. But at the same time, the parallels are there and I think they are, cannot be mistaken. So I do wish that Rachel Wise's character had a bit more to do because you're right. She, especially in the last 30 minutes, Uh, she just becomes, she, she, she screams a lot and it gets to a point where I just wish that she had more to her character so she could do more in this ending.
1: Oh, I literally laughed out loud when she yelled Aaron. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Oh,
1: I couldn't help but laugh in that moment. Yep. I am with you. You know, speaking of characters, there is a lot of new characters in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say probably the really only shining one of the bunch aside from Jeremy Renner is Edward Norton, who I don't think he ever really gives a bad performance. I think he always hones in on on his character really well. And that comes through. We don't know almost anything about him and why he's so darn important to everything. Right. But he has some really good lines in this movie. And I think there is some pretty solid writing in this movie, um, especially that line where um they just are like apparently toppling like this third world country or something mm-hmm. and he tells Aaron he says we are sin eaters we are morally indefensible and absolutely necessary we eat up the immoral excrement so the rest of our operation can stay pure right so some of his like moral justification comes out in really interesting ways so sadly him and Aaron are never going to meet face to face at least so far yep. in this movie but He's an interesting adversary, just a severely underdeveloped one, I would say. Right,
0: and his char- his character does bring up an interesting uh, viewpoint that I found, um, and that's where uh, he's he starts off like at the very beginning when we were first introduced to his character. He's trying to expose or trying to gather up all the information about the different operations that the CIA has. Right. And so he and his team are, when we first meet them, they're like right in the middle of doing all of this. And then once he finds out more information and then gets more involved with the situation and then gets to a point where he is willing to go along with sending out an assassin to kill the two main leads, um, even though he was at the very beginning of the story against that. Uh, He was very much trying to expose and trying to gather all the information. So it was an interesting character arc that he has from beginning to end where at first he's against, you know, kind of against this whole thing wants to gather all the information and review it. Then, then by the end of the story, he's doing a complete one hundred and eighty. He's willing to, he's willing to send out an assassin to kill our two main leads by the end of the story. It's an interesting idea to see how, um, how, and this also comes through with, uh, with what they do with Pamela Landy's character, where they at the, by the end of the story they're willing to write her off as a traitor instead of actually taking what she's ta- taking what she's presented with Blackbriar and Treadstone, um, and actually deal on that. They decide the main the uh, main antagonists try to roll it off as her being a traitor. So it's a parallel to that. It, I think it's uh, that's an interesting dynamic that they take with this character. You are correct; not a very developed character. Um, And I kind of question why he's played by Edward Norton, because he is such an underdeveloped character. But that was an interesting way of going about um, presenting Ed Norton's character in the story and then taking him down this track.
1: He does have the unenviable position of kind of filling the place that uh, Conklin and uh, whoever the other guy was, uh, Brian Cox's character... Vossen and landy he yeah. just never captures the gravitas i would say right. of those four characters in all three films there has always been very powerful characters on the other end and our lead always gets to interact with them in some way in the previous three films and that never happens here right which i think is just a real mistake that they never get to play off each other and uh ultimately this guy is just playing catch up uh to Aaron Cross for so long with with um the other guy says they've got like a 17-hour head start. I just found that to be a big mistake. Now, I don't want to get into the negatives just quite yet, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, I'm just saying that I'm glad they brought Edward Norton on. He does a good job with what he's given. I think there is just those screenplay flaws that don't allow him to really blossom more than I I think he could have.
0: Right. Uh, I agree with you.
1: Um, now, there's one scene that I always found to be pretty scary, and it's when Dr. Donald Foyt goes postal
0: Ah, yes, and shoots up the lab. That is still a scary scene today, I would say. I remember this. Yeah, I remember this was one of the few things I remember from this movie because that, it's been years since I've seen it. I, I Like I said, I probably watched it twice around the time that it came out. Um, so this was the scene that I specifically remembered. Um, was the scene when he goes, when he goes and shoots up that part of the, of the, of the lab, uh, this was the scene.
1: Uh, I will say I am disappointed though. There's still barely any explanation to why he does it because he seems very normal when he's talking to her about wanting approval for some project. And then the next moment he's like a complete psycho. Yeah. And they, we don't know if he was slipped pills if he was chemically altered, what happened? I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of an oversight. I'm just disappointed we missed out on.
0: Yeah, they briefly mentioned that because of what he, because of the chemicals and the stuff that he works with, there's a possibility that something happened and he got some of that inside of him, which made him go off the deep end. Um, they That's like a brief line that's just kind of mentioned once and like never again. Um, I can kind of maybe somewhat justify this scene as saying that uh, power corrupts, right? Because we also see with Edward Norton's character as he starts off one way and ends the other way as just talking about, same with this character. he's he's When he's introduced, he seems very likable, very nice. And um, by th- when it gets to this scene, he's on a complete 180 where the job that he's in has corrupted him in some way to make him or to have him make the choice of going in with uh, with a gun and shooting up that part of the lab. So I can kind of write it off as maybe that, uh, as the the job that these people have, um, have the danger of corrupting them and that Rachel Weiss is kind of caught in the middle of this. Same with Aaron Cross. Um, they're kind of caught in the middle of, are they going to allow themselves to be corrupted by the system or are they going to get out when they have the chance? Um, or are they going to be like, um, Edward Norton's character where they're in this for too long and then next thing they know, they're making decisions that aren't necessarily the most, uh, I guess, ethically sound. I, I can kind of run off like that, but his character is still very flimsy. Um, there's not enough there for his character to build off of for me to say, though that's exactly what it is. Uh, I, can make, I can make somewhat justifications, but I, well, I, mean, I agree with you that there's not enough justification there. So
1: well, we we really do need that scene just like in Ultimatum where Vosin orders Nikki to be taken out and Landy says, you can't just assassinate Nikki. Yeah. Because she was worried about them assassinating one of their own. Whereas I guess I can only assume that Edward Norton is pulling all the strings and having just scores of people murdered. Um, he's having these people that are associated with them indirectly in some ways in the lab. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Shearing has no idea about the CIA ramifications aspect of it. And so you can see that anti keeps getting upped with every film. And now this even ultra secret, not even associated with the CIA, some non some extra organization that has some vast power over the CIA is now having all these people just murdered without any thought. I understand that's conveyed in the film. I just wish it was conveyed better. I agree. And not.
0: I absolutely yeah. agree. I absolutely agree. There are, and I, I, I guess I'll maybe elaborate on this. Well, I guess I kind of already elaborated on this. I don't really want to get too deep into negatives, but there are some good ideas that are brought up here. That cr- power of corruption corruption um, theme that we have with some of these characters, but you're right. They bring them up, but they are not fleshed out very well.
1: And one of the ideas that I do really appreciate, and I think is smart, is ever since Jason Bourne went rogue all those years ago, they have decided to really use a lot of pills, chemical injections to not not just enhance, but to control these soldiers. Mm-hmm. And that's why outcome is Treadstone without the inconsistency. Right. is because they can use dosages to use the chemical balances in their brains to make them more of these controlled robotic soldiers in that way while still maintaining the human element that born and his other treadstone operatives were missing because we saw how stoic they were in the born identity so that's a really smart evolution of the series is to create another program where these people are much easier to control through modern science, I right. thought that was a smart idea. Yeah,
0: I agree. They're trying to keep that human element inside of them as much as they, as much as they can. Uh, that is an interesting idea to take, um, where it's not so dehumanizing like we've seen in the the previous Born trilogy. Now they're trying to somewhat keep that in in line, but at the same time, being able to still control uh, their operatives.
1: So were you not uh able to see the deleted scenes on this one?
0: I wasn't, no. I actually, I don't I actually don't own this on uh Blu-ray. I I I used to own it on D V D, but I don't anymore. oh uh, gotcha.
1: They are on the Blu-ray. Um, there's only three of them, and Gilroy said these scenes are a part of the canon of the movie. They just had to cut them for time, but nevertheless, whatever you see in the scenes did happen. In the movie,
0: interesting. it happened okay. in the
1: story. Hmm. So, but there's, there's not much I haven't mentioned already, but I am disappointed that Albert Finney did have this scene where he's under hotel arrest and he wants to call his daughter and he's just breaking down crying because of his life choices. And it's interesting because in ultimatum, he was like this very hard, scary man, but yeah. when it comes down to it, he's still very sensitive on the inside. And it's the guy that is in the Jeep outside of Shearing's house. When the house burns down, the guy drives up in the Jeep. Yeah. He's the one that poisons um, Hirsch's phone. So when he picks up the phone, it poisons him, which mimics cardiac arrest. And he dies from that. And he has those orders from uh, Edward Norton's character. So that's just kind of a plot thread that I kind of felt like you just saw it quickly on the airport screen that he died from a heart attack. But those are just... Little moments that I think would have made uh, Edward Norton's character even more villainous is that he is just really taking out everybody like Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather. Just all the five families are going to bite the dust at this point. They had that opportunity, but they did cut this from for time and they felt it was just too much of a detour to the scenes. But I I think it was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I guess I have to go back and watch those because I, I didn't even realize that the deleted scenes played such an important role. And mm-hmm. we've talked about deleted scenes in the past where we're just like, oh, well, why wasn't this in the movie? Because this kind of explains some things. Uh, but yeah, I guess that makes a bit more sense with that and how the director came out and said that they're actually canon. Like I don't think I've ever heard of that.
1: And at least they're not. Th- this editing is, I would say the editing is far better than that in Ultimatum. Despite Ultimatum winning the Oscar <laughs> for editing, uh, especially the first act we talked about. Um, it was so sloppily told so many plot threads left open that it just didn't make sense. Um, so I would say the editing is better here. I think um, James Newton Howard's score is really good. It feels it does not feel like he's copying um, those that have come before him, but it does feel like this is a sound and a score that would live in the Bourne universe. I don't know how you felt about it, but I liked
0: it. I found it mostly to be rather unimpressive um, <laughs> from Newton from James Newton Howard. We've talked about him before. We actually think the last time we talked about him would have been uh, the M Night Shyamalan retrospective. And pretty much all of those, at least to my end, I was like, "Yeah, this is this is good stuff." Every time he was on. Uh, to do the score, I thought he did a good job And pretty much everything that he'd done. This one, I, it's good, uh, but I, I think I'm more in line with the uh, the John Powell uh, way of going about a score like this. But it is different because this is a different character. It's not necessarily Jason Bourne again, it's somebody else. So I, I think it's good, but I am also still living in the shadow of uh, the original trilogy here.
1: At least we get the uh, theme from the previous films at the very end of this uh, movie. Yes.
0: Yeah. The uh, Extreme Ways by Moby, which has been remade four times now, I think. And uh, it will be remade oh. five times when the next movie comes out.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. I, I wasn't aware of that. Yep. Okay. So, unfortunately, I do have a lot of problems with this movie.
0: I'm with you. I've been holding... So I feel like a lot of our <laughs> positives have been like, this isn't great. But
1: yeah and so that's something I was very conflicted about through this movie is there are some things they do well I think it's well directed I think the some of the acting is good the sets look good the camera work is way better than last time uh. I don't know. <laughs> I think it is. I, I I found Ultimatum because maybe because I was watching it on such a big screen. Ultimatum was awful. I, I felt very nauseous in a lot of scenes, whereas this action was still shaky, but it was just the right amount. I could still tell what's going on.
0: I guess my opinion on the action is because the that original trilogy is going for a very grounded look. And this one is still two. But the original trilogy, especially Supremacy and Ultimatum, they used a lot of handheld. um, A lot of shaky handheld. And especially when it comes to those action scenes, they can get really messy um, because there's constant movement. So I feel like the way that they were filmed, the way that the action was filmed in those movies made that action, those action set pieces feel more grounded in reality. Here, because the camera isn't moving around so much, I feel like it takes away... From the realism of those original of the previous movies, where now it feels a bit too still, at least in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. and these action scenes are taken away from it. I don't find, it, especially this ending one, I don't find it very uh, as engaging. Seeing the camera uh, having a different style this time around.
1: Okay, so the the final action scene is in many ways a disappointment. Yeah. I think that the the stunts, the motorcycle stuff is pretty well done. It's exciting. I'm disappointed that it's the climax of the movie. Bourne has at least one car chase within like the middle of the movie.
0: Well, he and, hasn't. I know Supremacy ended on a car chase, but Ultimatum did too. Or at least, Well, it wasn't the end on the car chase, but it was like the last action scene before the end of it.
1: But that wasn't like the only major action scene in this movie.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So, I mean, technically there was that action
1: scene where Aaron saves Shearing in her house, which I think was pretty good. He's kind of running through the house and there's that really cool one shot where he jumps up all three stories. I thought that was pretty good. But I'm just saying that um, there's always some big action scene, at least within the middle of the movie or up front. And I feel like that's just missing here. This movie's long, the longest one at two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. And I'm just wanting more action. Born is always about the action. And this movie isn't all, all about that. So they do save it here for the very end, which I know threw me off the first time in theaters. And then all of a sudden it's the end of the movie. I'm like, wait, what? Yep. Any, any other born movie would have kept going from here. I just felt like we weren't done. But I, I all of that being said, I am disappointed because I feel like they are never in any danger uh, at this final motorcycle
0: chase. It's just not intense. That's a very fair criticism. These two characters never feel like they're ever in danger. And even when their main character, Aaron Cross, is like at a point where he could be in danger, they just skip right over it. They skip over the part when he gets sick because he's um, growing that immunity to uh, the pills that he has been taking. He's getting, what is it, uh, de- he's getting deviraled or whatever. Uh, they're viraling him out of his dependency right. on some of the medication, right? There's a moment where he's sick and he can't move in bed, which is a perfect opportunity to attack him when he's down, but then he doesn't <laughs> do that for some reason. I, I The only time we're ever in these two characters are ever really in danger, per se, is when, uh, is when he's shot while they're on the motorcycle, Um but then nothing comes of it. Uh, Rachel Wise takes care of the guy who's pursuing them. And, and then that ends the chase. That ends the, the whole chase that's been going on for half an hour at this point. So you're, you're right. That is a very fair criticism. These two characters are never really in any, I, I would say, any primordial danger. And that's the
1: biggest disappointment of this movie, I would say, is Bourne is a character that is getting beat up a lot. He's getting shot. He's getting driven over in a car, but he still keeps going. He still can't just give up. Now, here's the preliminary problem, if you will, that they set up for Aaron Cross is that he needs these pills in order to keep going or else he'll just mentally slip off or degrade Mm -hmm. or whatever. He's already, he's physically fine, which that, It's another thing that really frustrates me is that he's physically been viraled out and didn't even know it. But mentally, he's not going to be there. They never do anything with that in this movie. Yep. He is undefeatable. He's never in any danger. And he's never incapacitated due to this, I'm going to say it, very dumb plot of globetrotting to get pills or injections.
0: It's kind of funny because this is the longest born film but yet it feels like very little was accomplished by the end of it because oh, yeah, the main the main storyline is getting uh, Aaron Cross viraled off of these medications, right? Well, when that finally happens, we have one more action scene and the movie ends, right? And that's yeah. pretty outside of that, learning that now these different operations now have uh, their operatives on medication and that there are more operations other than just Blackbriar and Treadstone. That's really all that we find out. That's really all that really happens in the story. And yet it's the longest of all these boring films by at least at this point by about 20 minutes or so, Uh, which is it's weird to me. Did you ever clock watch during this movie? Um, I usually try not to. <laughs> um, I did a couple of times. I, I clock watched partially because I got a call from somebody. So I had to pause it and that's when I saw that mm. I had half an hour left. And that was right before the big action scene at the end happened. I was like, oh yeah, I right this part. I forgot about this part. So part it was partially Yes, but not my fault.
1: I mean, even an hour and a half into this movie and we still have like almost, almost another hour to go. Yeah. And. Gilroy just hasn't explained to me or given me any good reason why I should care about this brand new character. Now, Jason is a man without a memory. He doesn't know his past. He is very disoriented and he's being, he's a top government agent supposedly that's being hunted by all that. And his life is unraveling because of it. That's a great plight. That is a great character arc. We we have to learn to figure out Aaron Cross's character plight is he needs to uh, get pills or be viraled out or else he will just die. I guess I don't care about this character at all. And I think his, I think this uh, plot of getting pills and kidnapping the doctor and getting her to go along with it is just dumb. I was so disappointed. Gilroy didn't do something better than this. Yeah,
0: I can see that they were going for some somewhat of a, of a story on this character finally breaking free from all of his restraints, all of these things above him, he's finally breaking free from it all, right? Which is something that, uh, Jason board could never do. He kind of did that in the first one, but at the same time, part of that movie was him trying to figure out who he even was. Um, well, we don't have that crux in this one. It's just Aaron cross getting himself away from the operation that he's been working under for who knows how long. Um, so when we finally get to that ending, uh, it feels ultimately unsatisfying because that's all we've done this whole movie is follow him as he tries to get viraled out of this medication. And the problem is whether you like this film or not, I think it's undeniable that this this movie still and always will live under the shadow of the Born trilogy that came before it. You can't really go too far uh, bef- outside of the Born trilogy without being in the shadow of those three films. And I think that because of that, this has a lot of catching up to do especially when you have a main character that isn't Jason Bourne. That ha- you ha- that takes a lot to get to a point where the audience is going to be able to accept it um without the character that they've come that they've known for three movies now have someone that is suddenly not in it at all.
1: Exactly. And you really have to give us a reason why we need to be invested in this new character. They don't give any proper backstory connections between Edward Norton and Jeremy Renner's characters that would give us some big aha moments or some big show off that we're face off, I should say that we're ready to see occur. There's no real personal connection at all. Um, to any of these characters or their real plights, except yeah, they got, he, he was betrayed by the government. They're hunting him down. And we've seen this honestly a thousand times before Mm -hmm. in other movies. It's pretty cliche. You got to give us something more. I mean, I'm thinking of the fugitive with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. That's another movie about a man on the run from the government, but he's wrongly, I won't give the movie away, but he's wrongly accused. That is a great riveting movie. There is no emotional connection here. Yeah whatsoever to these characters. So I was really disappointed by that. Um one of the other things that I feel like I've already touched on before but just to really drive home is I don't care about Edward Norton's group whatsoever. I I think they're pretty awful actually how uh he is like kind of the babysitter that's in charge of these kids yep. and they kind of have some good ideas but usually they're stupid and he shoots them down. And they have to get his his approval. And they are constantly playing catch-up. They, they look inept and they're stupid. I don't even know half of their roles anyway. I'm, I was just terribly disappointed with uh, all of them. I think they're so
0: poorly conceived. And I think my biggest problem with Edward Norton's character is the fact that he could have been played by pretty much anybody. I don't feel like the character that he plays is necessarily somebody that only Edward Norton could have played because his character feels and is written in such a way where he feels so insignificant. Um, Or because he plays such a little role in the story because he has so little screen time, I I wanna know why Edward Norton was chosen for this role Um, or why he couldn't have been played by somebody else. Because, and in some ways, I kind of find him a little bit... Him and Jeremy Renner are a little bit distracting. Rachel Wise is a bit distracting because they are such big names. And usually, Jason Bourne movies have a few big names, but not everyone in the main cast is, like, a well-known actor. Right. Um So now seeing, you know, three pretty big names here, that does make it a little bit distracting. Again, pulls me out of that realism that these Bourne movies have always had. So... Yeah. i just i wonder why 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 edward norton is playing this role maybe there is more in the scenes of him but besides the fact what we have here that's the finished product i i wonder why he's even playing this role why, why wasn't it somebody else
1: yeah you're right i mean all three of them have been at the oscars before mm-hmm. um they're big names and everybody knows them i mean at least for the most part probably But you're right. um, There's really nothing significant about it. He's not given a lot to do. And it is weird to see the CIA director go to, and this is something I'm I'm honestly getting really tired of, is there's always some big bad behind the scenes. Yeah. That's even more in the loop. That's even more controlling. There's even, it's not just Treadstone. It's Blackbriar. It's not just Blackbriar. It's Outcome. It's Emerald Lake. Oh my gosh, it's, the it's the National Research assay group yep what yep what I, I'm just really tired of that as well where and and I find that I found that to be very redundant how the CIA director goes to terso who seems he's like an admiral I guess and then he goes to Rick Beyer, who's very scary the CIA he won't even let the CIA director go to Rick Byer. Rick Byer is now the one going to shut down and control everything I guess he's the real puppet master. I can't I just can't emphasize enough how absolutely absurd his little group is in this movie and how little they accomplish and do. I really hate it actually <laughs> yeah it's just yeah. it's just terribly aggravating and especially because uh, I was going to look up his name because um, I really like him in this movie uh, the Dream team. He is, seems to be in charge of the Manila facility. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but he has almost nothing to do in this movie. Um, yeah, Corey Stoll and Michael Chernus are also part of the group. They have nothing to do. I think her name's Dita. She's got stuff to do. Um, yeah, Dennis Butsikaris. He's got a really good role on Better Call Saul. He plays Terrence Ward. You don't know any of these characters' names. Yeah, There's too many of them, and they don't serve a purpose. So, I'm just very frustrated by that. Um, one of my other uh, major disappointments is this movie gets lost in its techno babble.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, I saw this brief, like, a brief summary of a person's review on this film um, mm-hmm. a while back. And I think it kind of explains, like, everything about the story. Um, there's a lot of detail to the story. The problem is, the story doesn't go the, aside from that. The detail that they give—that's um, really about it. And the details are just about like the medicine that he's on and all kinds of stuff like that. The problem is, there's a lot of detail there, but it's also not very horizontal. There isn't a lot that this movie covers to make it more engaging. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where I was saying that it's kind of funny that this movie is the longest-born movie that we have, yet so little was accomplished at the end of it. They want to explain so much. Uh, They want to dive deep into how everything works. And I think the concept is an interesting idea, having more different operatives now have to take medicine to, to keep themselves energized and keep themselves ready to go physically and mentally, et cetera, et cetera. And they have to explain that if you get off of that, then you're you're going to go insane, essentially, um, and that you can get viral out of this. You can be infected with this virus, and eventually, you'll be able to be immune to it. Like you know, all this needlessly complicated information that we don't really need to know. They probably could have skipped over it, and it would have been fine. But I see what they're going for. They're they're trying to make a world that's so detailed, but at the same time. You, that does lose, you do get lost in all those details. All that, as you said, de- all that techno babble, talking about all the different things, every single little detail to all the different steps of the story are explained in some way, which would be fine um, if the story also decided, if the story was also covering more bases as well, which it doesn't do.
1: And, you know, Gilroy was very good at this in Michael Clayton, because that is a movie about lawyers and different laws. And he wrote that into that film in such a way that it wasn't pretentious. It wasn't the main focus either. It did enrich the world. This just comes across as pretentious because Rachel Wise character is a walking exposition dump, especially for especially for a, a, about half of the movie. Yeah, walking exposition does nothing dump but-
0: and a plot device.
1: And a plot device. Yeah. And I'm really frustrated by how most of their conversations consist of her explaining to Aaron about pills and viruses and viraling off and research. It just becomes utterly obnoxious. My my eyes glaze over. My ears begin to tune it all out. I watched it with subtitles, which helped. Mm. And I would say that's one of the reasons why when I first came out of this movie, I was just so confused by all of it. And it's another reason why in another couple of years, I'm not going to remember by, by this time next year, I'm probably not going to remember the plot of this movie. I never remember the plot because it's so bloated with this techno jargon that is so pretentious. It's, it's not good.
0: Yeah. And I guess I kind of, I guess I kind of briefly touched on this a second ago, but the story is more vertical than it is horizontal, right? They want to cover small, they want to cover a small portion of things to such great lengths. But because they're, so, because they're covering so many, only so many things, uh, the story feels like very little was accomplished at the end of it. There wasn't, this was an actual Jason Bourne movie because when you, when you finish the other movies that have led up to this point, do you feel like there has been a lot that's happened? Whereas in this one, that's not the case because they don't have the horizontal coverage as well. They don't have other things that they want to, that they want to discuss. It's just a small amount of details that are covered in such great lengths. Uh, To try and build the story, which I I get, but at the same time, you're still missing the horizontal storytelling here. So that I feel is part, one of my biggest criticisms is how story is told.
1: Yeah, one of my last negatives that I I find to be bad, I'll see what you think, Alan, is I really just thought it wasn't a good idea to have our introduction to Alex, uh, or excuse me, I keep saying Alex.
0: There is a movie called Alex Cross. Hey, I haven't seen it, but apparently it's really bad.
1: I don't know why they even named him Aaron Cross. I I personally feel Aaron Cross is kind of a stupid name. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any sort of ring to it like Jason Bourne does. Right. Nevertheless. um, Oh, well, no wonder Alex Cross came out in 2012, the same year as this movie. You <laughs> oh,
0: know,
1: gosh. Anyways, but I don't think they should have introduced him. Having him a shot floating in the water, looking up at him from down below. I think that was probably a bad idea and far too much of a callback. I just felt like Gilroy was better than that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does kind of serve to be what his character is going to end up uh, getting to, which is that he finally realizes um, that the CIA is actually after to kill him, especially in about 20 minutes uh but you're all right they are kind of they are definitely hearkening back to the opening of the born leg of the born identity where uh the first shot of that movie is jason Bourne and also in the water um the 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 difference is jason Bourne's plight is much more as much is a lot more interesting than it is here my problem with this opening is it keeps cutting back to aaron cross in alaska um but again every time they cut back it's Just to fill time, it feels like, because there are a lot of repeat shots um, of him trudging through the snow or climbing up a mountain uh, that lead to seemingly nowhere, um, except to show us that he's in Alaska for some reason, Uh, especially in this opening. While everything else, the CIA part of it, they're getting uh, the CIA and they're catching us up to speed. They're they're telling us that the CIA is being investigated by a different group with Edward, Edward Norton. That's all being built up. But we've already been established that Aaron crosses in Alaska, and that when we come back to him, oh, good, he's still in Alaska.
1: Yeah, let's just admit the first act is juggling a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't. Ne- I don't necessarily want to say it's sloppy because I think the Gilroy brothers, even though they wrote not a very compelling screenplay, I still think it's logically structured. And the film is fairly well paced for being over two hours and whatnot. But nevertheless, they are juggling a lot by establishing Aaron Cross, as you said, being this awesome soldier in Alaska and water. Mm-hmm. It's so freezing cold, which Jeremy Renner did. That was for real, oh. actually. Uh it was a real thing up in Alaska. So but nevertheless, they're trying, they're also showing. Scenes from The Born Ultimatum. So we're getting a recap of Ultimatum. We're getting the sidebar of what's going on. Plus Aaron Cross reenacting Liam Neeson in the gray. Fighting <laughs> yes. off wolves. Oh, it,
0: it, I was just thinking <sighs> that exactly. I was like, oh, this kind of looks like the gray. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pretty much. So if you do go back and watch that um, first act as well. And then it ultimately feels very unfulfilling with his relationship. Encountering Oscar Isaac, who just gets blown up. And. There is a deleted scene that shows all of the um, four or five outcome agents that we see are all very paranoid, um, not just against each other, but also mostly against the head of the outcome program. And they are actually secretly hiding pills and trying to get off medicine um, just in case so they won't be totally under the control of the government. Unfortunately, that scene is completely cut, so a lot of their motivation is not there whatsoever, but nevertheless, yeah, it's a lot and kind of disappointing that it's just, I just wish it was more streamlined. And the other thing that disappoints me is the very end of the movie, where we get this tiny sliver of Vosin, he's in the clear, and Landy is the one that's going to go down as a traitor for leaking these documents, and... I feel like that's a tease that's never going to have any kind of resolution. So I was actually hoping that would have been more of a through line throughout this movie. But since they tied themselves so tightly to the timeline of Ultimatum, we're just not going to get it until the end. Right.
0: Yeah, I do wish that they explored it a bit more. And I think that they were leaving it open maybe for future movies to take a hold. There are things here that I feel are here for future movies if they come to grab a hold and run with. Uh, mostly with this idea that the CIA is just going to uh is going to cover Pam Blandy as being a traitor or, or being in, or being under treason um that I think was definitely there especially to make way for future movies if there were to be right. some yeah um I just wish that uh I think that might be also be the same way with how the story is told because I've been as I've been saying it's it's not told it's told vertically not horizontally right Um, and maybe future movies were going to cover more of the horizontal storytelling where it's covering a lot of, it's covering fewer things, but in a lot of great detail. If that were to become the case like this, if this were to become a new trilogy, maybe that would have been the case. I I don't know if that was a plan, but that seems to feel like that may have been it. So of them going into such detail, I I do applaud them for that, for giving a lot of thought to the story, but at the same time, they do get kind of wrapped up in it. So, yeah, the, the the story just feels when it when it when it ends just feels kind of clunky because you do have remnants from Ultimatum, obviously, that you had to get through. But at the same time, uh, it feels like it's its own movie and then you have so much detail for a certain amount of things, but it's, other things don't have any detail at all. So it <laughs> well, just feels it's clunky. also
1: structurally yeah. it's structurally clunky, like you're yeah. saying, because um cross and shearing fall off the motorcycle and she gives a stupid impassioned plea like can you help us please? yeah and it cuts back to new york where we're seeing boson and landy because oh oh wait we, we can't forget about the aftermath of that i guess yeah i don't even remember how we leave ed norton's character uh there's too many things going on at once and then of course they finally have to come back to our leads to our heroes and conclude the story with them on a boat Hoping they'll get lost and it's kind of this happy romantic ending, I guess. Yeah. But honestly, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to Terminator Salvation, which just frustrates me. Oh, yeah. Because, well, that was supposed to kick off a new trilogy. And I knew this one is obviously supposed to spawn more sequels where Cross was supposed to come back. And eventually, of course, he was going to intersect with Jason Bourne. Ah,
0: uh, yes, I do remember this.
1: Spoiler alert, none of that has happened so far. Okay. And so I just hate it with movies where they do leave dangling threads to potentially explore in a sequel. Don't do it. Don't leave threads that you don't know that you can deliver on. Mm-hmm. If you do get a sequel, fine. Explore them there, but don't leave threads. I just hate
0: that. Yep, I, I agree. And I least take think that the... F- First three movies, like they were pretty good at keeping themselves pretty self-contained. You probably just see the one before it to understand the details going into the the one you're about to watch. But sure, when they were ending, they didn't rely on you have to see the next one to finish the story. They were all pretty (laughs) once once the movie ended that that was into that story. It was pretty self-contained.
1: And that is something I loved about those three films is each film ended where it's like, okay, I, that could just be the end of the series. Yeah, yeah. And I could be satisfied. I agree. You know, maybe Jason doesn't get to know everything, but nevertheless, it's a self-contained story at the very least. This one, eh, not so much. Yeah. So, Alan, I'm very curious. I'm, a- I'm actually very <laughs> curious on this one. What is your rating and recommendation for The Bourne Legacy?
0: So, I, like I've said a few times, In this podcast, there are things here that I can see where they're going with it. I can see where they're going with Ed Norton's character, even though I don't find him to be all that satisfying or even I I even question why he needed to be played by Ed Ed Norton in the first place. I can see where they're going with Aaron Cross's character. I do think that he's a bit more fulfilling in this uh, compared to Ed Norton's character. But at the same time, everything here I feel feel is lacking. uh, I feel it's lacking. I can see where the story is going. I can see that there is a lot of detail here, which I think is very interesting um, to see that these writers go to such lengths to explain a lot of things. But at the same time, it covers so little ground when you were finally done with it, uh, that it makes the movie feel like it's just missing something. Like I mentioned, it feels like so little was accomplished. Some of these action scenes, while they're still fun, they do go on for a long time, especially this last one goes on for way too long. Richard Weiss's character feels more like a plot device than she does an actual character. Um, anyways, all that to say, I struggle to understand why, why they would make a movie without the main main character being in the movie at all. Why would, why would they want to make a new trilogy if that was their goal. Why would they even want to make this movie in the first place? um, Is my question. And I can see that maybe they were going for a trilogy. And I can see if they were going to do that, why this movie feels so like so little ground was covered. But they didn't make a trilogy. Uh, This is its own standalone movie. So I don't get to judge it based on the ones that come after it. And I'm trying to keep it as far away from that original trilogy as I can. But As I said before, it's kind of impossible for me to do that because it still lives in the shadow of those first three movies. So at the end of the day, I'm going to give it a five out of 10, but it's gonna be a pretty solid not recommend for me. I think that there are things here that I think are interesting. There are things here that I think are good uh, or on the track to being good. But when it's all said and done, I find it to be very unsatisfying. So that's my score, five out of 10, uh, not recommend. Looking
1: over this fourth entry, with my SSG goggles on, I realize The Bourne Legacy is less of the fourth film, but rather a first installment to a new trilogy that loosely bridges back to the first trilogy. The character Aaron Cross is an exciting character, with an actual personality which gratefully sets him apart from Jason Bourne. Renner does a great job here, and so does everyone else for the most part. Directing, cinematography, the score, and editing are all really well done. Even the fighting is far better choreographed and kept in camera, allowing me to feel the adrenaline without the nausea, which was a major complaint last time. Ultimately, I'm just let down by the script. I understand the Gilroys are teasing us with character backstories and connections to build up further in a next installment. That's all fine. But having Cross's first mission be to run across the world looking for pills and serums to keep him from dying isn't compelling. It's lame. Not to mention, the bad guys in this film are so disjointed in how they all fit together, and their motivation for assassinating all the assassins sets the whole plot in motion, which can often come across as manufactured drama. After seeing Gilroy's Oscar darling Michael Clayton, I was very excited for this movie. I thought, now that I'm older, I'll appreciate it more. I do appreciate the writing, save for the obnoxious amount of techno babble. I do appreciate that writing is greatly improved over the last film, and same with the editing and cinematography. There's a lot they do right in this film, but the plot is so weak it does not justify spinning off of Bourne to create a broader universe. Sadly, I'm very disappointed with this over-elongated Bourne-esque excursion. The Bourne Legacy receives four stars out of 10 with a solid not recommend.
0: So I got to say, I know you're probably going to disagree with me. Um, I do think that, and I briefly mentioned this earlier, um, but you said that in your final thoughts, and you also said this earlier too, uh, that you think that cinematography is better here. Um, I disagree, I want Paul Greengrass back because I like no. I like the shaky cam. I'm going to say it. No. I like it. I like it because it adds that extra, it adds that extra realism to the story. Because as they said when they brought him on for Supremacy, uh, his style was making the camera feel like an active participant. And I feel that that doesn't happen here. I know you're going to disagree with me and most people will, but I like the shaky cam and I miss it here
1: you know in some sections i do miss it um particularly in some chase sequences it felt so visceral so hard hitting green grass would put the camera down between the legs of people running it felt like he really did just throw it on his back and in some places they did like in the tangier sequence and ultimatum those aren't extras they're really pushing through the crowd of people i think that's great i just am more grateful that I can actually sit here and focus on things that are happening without the camera feeling like it has Parkinson's disease. And I'm not saying that in any sort of derogatory term, but it is so shaky to the point it can't hold itself in focus. And especially the action scenes were so bad in the last movie that... You just have no idea what's going on. The action scenes are way better shot in this movie, but sounds like Alan and I totally disagree. I don't know about that. <laughs> I
0: will agree with you that there is a bit too much action in Ultimate, and we talked about that in the previous podcast, but I think that the action in that is so much more engaging than it is here. Way more engaging. Mm-hmm. That's just me, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Alan,
1: I got to say, you you did not recommend this film. Neither of us did, and... Let the record show, I'm very much teetering between a four and a five because I think there is a lot of good things about this movie. But at the same time, I think this movie is still pretty bad and I'm very disappointed by it. But nevertheless, my question is, are you going to pick up or pass on this one?
0: Uh, I think I'm going to have to pass. Oh, yeah. And that's because I I think I did own this on DVD at one point. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, But after I sold it, thinking about getting the blu-ray and now seeing it again i don't really see i guess i need for me to, to buy it again
1: so alan is clearly not a completionist no. i
0: guess i here's my i guess that's kind of the thing i buy films that i have some kind of emotional attachment to i don't necessarily have one with this here this with this one here
1: you know, I don't ever see a reason why I would ever watch this movie again. I found it. I found the pacing to be fine. I just found it to be uninteresting and I didn't emotionally connect with it in any way. So for that aspect, being two hours, 15 minutes, like it's kind of a slog. I will watch this again someday with my kids <laughs> or if my wife ever wants to go through them, then I have all five films in the TV show and the original TV miniseries on Plex. So I'm Kind of have become a completionist with this, but uh, I am disappointed with it. But I, I've i owned the I got it for a Christmas present also, but it was the Blu-ray with the DVD ah. and the digital copy. So it's it's not going anywhere from my collection. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: after watching The Born Legacy, Alan, what else would you recommend that viewers watch? I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but The Italian Job from 2003, I've heard that Mm -hmm. the original one is better, um, but I got some pretty bigger vibes off of this one this time around than I did whenever I mentioned it last time. I think it was Supremacy. Uh, Other than that, uh, I'm I'm also thinking of The Transporter with Jason Statham, both of which are very early 2000s, (laughs) but uh, I do feel that they are somewhat comparable to this one. Although I found this one to be not nearly as early 2000s as those recommendations.
1: Hmm. And my recommendation is going to be Michael Clayton. Ah, yes. That is a fantastic Tony Gilroy film. It's, it's a drama, so it's not really action oriented. So don't go in thinking that it's very different from this movie, but, and if I could give a video game recommendation, also I'd play, I would suggest you play Uncharted 4. Ah. Um, I couldn't help but feel like Uncharted Four is a much better version of this movie because you're globe trotting, you got a better romantic connection. you've got a way better motorcycle chase sequence trying to get oh, to yeah. the docks.
0: an amazing uh, amazing motorcycle chase, all things considered.
1: That's all I could think about. I'm like, I just wish this was as good as Uncharted Four. So <laughs> if you have a PlayStation four, I definitely recommend you check out that game. It is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So. Are we going to be reviewing next week the Born? I don't even know the Born Cross crossover. No, we are unfortunately, not.
0: Unfortunately, unfortunately, no. Sad, sadly, the there was not a sequel to this movie.
1: You know, leaving the theater in twenty twelve, I was excited to see where we're going to go with these characters. So far, it hasn't happened. It was confirmed, though, in late 2013 that Universal brought Fast and Furious director Justin Lin on board to direct Born 5, and Uh, Renner was confirmed as returning as Aaron Cross and Anthony Peckham was writing the script, and Universal set an official release date of August 14th, 2015.
0: I think I heard about this. I think I remember this.
1: Well, Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon messed it all up. <laughs> and as they do. As they do. And they really did um make Aaron Cross turn out to be kind of the ugly redheaded stepchild, that he was more so a placeholder until we could get the real talent back. That's the way it came across anyway from my research. So in 2014, Matt Damon officially confirmed that him and Greengrass were coming back for Born Five, therefore putting any kind of Renner sequel on hold indefinitely. Ah. But nevertheless, rumor still has it that a crossover with Born, and this has been swirling around for many years, mm-hmm. that a crossover with Born and Cross will eventually happen. But that may not be until Born 7, if we ever make it that far, because there are plans for a sequel to Jason Bourne. If we're going to get a sequel, it's going to be to Jason Bourne, and even that has been Four
0: years at this point without any word of a born six. I wonder what it'll be called. Jason born two. (laughs) Jason born again. Jason reborn. Yeah. Jason (laughs) rebarb. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) So my prediction is we are never going to see Aaron Cross again. What do you think, Alan?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I'm kind of with you. I don't know if we'll ever see him again. I don't know if I if there are many people who really want to see Aaron Cross again, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, judging by box office and the scores, yeah, nobody would ever care to
0: see this again, probably. <laughs> yeah, that's my guess.
1: You know, in some ways, I think I would really actually like it if Born 6 was kind of bringing everything together between these two characters And then maybe we could be done. But the problem with this series is it's kind of like the fact that they even made a movie called Jason Bourne just makes me feel like this is a never ending story that's never going to have any kind of satisfactory conclusions. I thought Ultimatum was a good ending. We're done. They just can't let this lie. Why? Because of money. Because of
0: money. And this is nothing new either. We've seen this with Halloween's a great example, (laughs) where for whatever reason, they are so compelled to continue to make sequels and reboots and restart the franchise so many times for whatever reason. This is nothing new.
1: Ellen, I just pray we're not going to be here 20 years later with <laughs> the Born 8 or whatever. I just yeah. don't want us to have a Rambo situation where the first movie comes out in like the late 70s or something. And then the other movie comes out in 2019. Yep. Just please, no, don't do this to us. Don't turn Jason Bourne into a Rambo character. We reviewed um, Rambo Last Blood. You'll see how that ended out. wasn't yeah. pretty. Yeah. Well, listeners, the question after the show is, are you disappointed Jason Bourne doesn't make an appearance in this movie? Because I was I was sitting there at the end of the theater. I'm like, where's he had to have made a cameo and he didn't.
0: Yeah, I I will be. I want to hear from those who are going to say no and why, because Mm. I feel like most of the answers are going to be absolutely yes.
1: There are people like that. I know some people think it's actually a good thing. Halloween Kills has been delayed a full year. Yeah. I don't know. You have people on both sides. I'm very curious to see what you think. Listeners, personally, I was definitely disappointed, and I still am. But nevertheless, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will be back next week to conclude, or now, our Jason Bourne movie review series with Jason Bourne. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family. And we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin.